Do you have an idea for a product or book? Or are you ready to go beyond in-service presentations? Well, how do you get started? And what if you don't have any business experience at all? Well, I have some great news for you. I'm Mailing Chan, and I'm getting the nitty-gritty stories from parents, teachers, therapists, advocates, and people with disabilities who have created successful businesses, and they're sharing their intimate stories with you. Listen to us on the Exceptional Leaders Podcast and fast-track creating and building and sharing your idea with the world so that you can help more people. Please listen carefully. What is communication? The act of taking a thought from my head and putting it into your essential behavior of life. We have the both blessing and responsibility of trying to foster. It's the strongest way for two people to convey information to each other. Usually what I have in my head to the outside world draws us out of ourselves, draws us into that relationship, you know, builds up our families. Without it, we'd be lost. I think it's the ability to share your innermost feelings and thoughts with others. Whatever it is that we do to express intent and achieve an impact. Communication is the ability to express your needs, wants, frustrations, and desires to anyone that you feel needs to have that information. You know, I was thinking, you know, I could go with you. We, we could do this together. You know we can't do that. Right, Dad? I was your age when my father passed away. I never got to say goodbye. Say goodbye, Dad. You're damn right it's not. See you soon? Yeah, you will. Welcome to episode 68, starting off on a little bit of a somber news. Luke Perry, uh, Fred Archer, Archie's dad on Riverdale, or you may know him as Dylan from 90210, uh, passed today, March 4th. Uh, from complications of a stroke and it's kind of a somber way to start off the show but a kind of a real reminder that we are working in the medical field sometimes so i apologize to start on a downer i should introduce everybody else at the top we got michelle wintering hi matt and michael mcleod at the bottom what's up buddy Oh, it's episode 68. We're proud members of the Exceptional Podcast Network. You can check out our website, speechsciencepodcast.com, which directly links you to our friends over at the XPN. Or check out our uh, Patreon, patreon.com slash mwhproduction. And also you can give us a phone call, 614-681-1798, or email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. I feel like that intro gets longer and longer and longer we've got important people to talk to we're connected with now but yeah kind of sad news i I woke up or i got a message today from my wife which was a crying face emoji about uh uh, luke perry i also read that something happened today and that he that he passed away but i don't really i didn't really know who he was you're not a beverly hills 90210 fan i never never saw it michelle never watched it Oh, see, I didn't really know him from Beverly Hills 90210, but Riverdale, which is on the CW, uh, which is the Archie comic books as a TV show. uh, I really got into that show. Yeah. I mean, I recognized the actor and I did hear I caught that in the news. But um, but no, he was relatively young, right? Yeah. 52. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That is young. Okay. Wow. And I think that's kind of also the reason why it kind of hits everyone so so hard. And I think this is a wonderful wake up wake up opportunity 
just because he was so young. I know I've been trying to lose weight because, you know, I've got young boys. 52 for me is only 19 years from now. I'd like to see my boys get married. And at 19 years, my one's going to be 21. The other's going to be 24. Wow. Right. Well, and I I believe uh, he had a couple kids as well who are probably around those ages. Mm Mm-hmm. So sad news, uh, kind of a way to start off the show, but I know a lot of our listeners kind of fit into that 90210 uh, age bracket or some of our younger ones are, are Riverdale fans. So kind of sad news there on Luke Perry. Um, let's switch up gears and get back to the way we normally start the show off. Michelle Wintering, how has your week been? We have snow. I love it. <laughs> ah, I hate snow. <laughs> oh, yeah. No, I, I'm actually really enjoying it. It melts too quick here because it's... Um... We're south of you, Matt. So, <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah, but we're we're doing well, enjoying the snow and the colder weather. And even though it's a little late, uh, we didn't get too much snow this year. So I'm liking I'm liking the white blanket on the. Uh, and now you've got a license. So I are do. you practicing yet? I Matt, jobs don't just like <laughs> fall off trees. For me. I don't know. I've got seven. So right now you could have one of my jobs. Hey, you're, you're a couple hours away from me though. I don't know if that's, <laughs> that's quite worth it. No, I, we're, we're figuring out. Um, I know people can relate to that who have kids and um, moving and between my husband's job and hopefully me getting back to work here. What, what hours, what I can take PRN part-time full-time and we'll go from there. I'll let you know when it happens. Fair enough. Michael McLeod researcher private practice owner not a fan of evidently beverly hills 90210 what has been going on with you this week uh yeah i had uh two just really really awesome iep meetings today uh for two of my uh private clients that i work with in the clinic uh i went over to their their schools today and met with their school team which is a crucial part of private practice and it was just two incredibly successful meetings uh both schools were just incredibly receptive to suggestions and accommodations and willing to collaborate. And it was just awesome. Both, both meetings just went so smoothly and all the staff there were just so professional. I, I could not say enough good things about the school teams that I worked with today. And I think that's important to say is that on this show, we do feature a lot of times the news articles about what happens in the schools. And unfortunately in the news, if it bleeds, it leads, which means that if it's a bad story, we, we talk about it, but I think you're right. I think the majority of school-based personnel, both speech therapy and occupational therapy and intervention specialists, I think, I think they're going to be more in that category, Michael, that you just said that they are teams that are willing to work together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I've even been in situations where parents are upset with the school SLP and kind of want me to kind of go in there and, and be aggressive and things like that. But I, I refuse to do that. I can't, I, I'm, that's not what my job is. My job is to collaborate, share ideas, listen to them, learn from them. And I, and I've had so many positive experiences recently with these schools around here in the, in the Philadelphia region, uh, just sharing ideas and collaborating and just, providing best quality care because a lot of the work that I do with speech therapy, pragmatics and executive functioning, it's so environment dependent. And I, I want to know what they're doing in the school, what's working, what's not, uh, where are they social, wh- where are instances where things fall apart and anxiety increases. 
and the more communication there is, the better, and it makes it easier on both of us. And and the, some of the SLPs I've worked with in schools are some of the most intelligent, hardworking people I've been able to collaborate with. Now that's a pretty ringing endorsement there, Michael McLeod. Yes, sir. Uh, for me, I've broken down twice in IEP meetings and cried over a student this past week. So that was interesting. I've never done before in eight years in my career. Um, the other thing is, is that uh, it was the end of the month. And if you work in home care, you understand. And I don't know if it's the same way in private practice. So Michael and Michelle, feel free to inform me. But all of our reports have to make be they have to be turned in at the end of the month uh, for compliance reasons. And that's normally fine because that gives you time in case you have to mess something up and you have to fix it. Uh, I did an Oasis discharge on the 28th, which means that I know like normally it takes a day or two to make sure everything's turned in and done. Well, I had to turn that thing around in about two hours. Wow. So I was a little stressed on the 28th and both my boys are sick with hundred degree temps. So yay in my house right now. Uh, we've had that in my house too. My husband uh. as well. So the tell us so tell, plus degree so, temperatures. Oof. So tell us more about these uh, IEP tiers. Yeah, um, I, I can't really without going into uh, breaking some version of HIPAA, which will save me from a too big of an embarrassing story. But needless to say, uh, their stories touched me, and I will be sad that they no longer need my services. So they were happy tears. Yeah, they were happy. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, I'm going to miss them, but they were happy tears overall. But yeah. still, there there was a moment where the the grizzled high school speech pathologist who refuses to give hugs and never cares was, like, wiping a tear in the middle of the of a description. So All mm -hmm. SLPs cry at some point. And that, that is, is okay, Usually, Matt. It's a rite of passage. <laughs> it is a rite of passage. And the rite of passage on this show... I'm pretty excited about today. I'm excited because I got to sit down with Tina Eichstadt. Tina is the as a master's of science, triple C SLP. She's also a senior product manager for Pearson clinical assessment. Uh, and she's talks with me today about picking out the right assessment and what goes into that. And maybe if you're interested, how do you get a test picked up by a company like Pearson or one of the other ones. Also on today's show, uh, Perry Flynn will be calling in to talk live from Capitol Hill. And also we'll be talking about former Aetna medical director admits they never reviewed medical records before they denied your payment. But first, I figured we would start off with this. Uh, it's a story coming out of KevinMD.com. It's MedPages Today. Uh, and this is from Robert Center, uh, MD, and he says it's time to ban productivity from medicine. And I think that sound you hear right there is every SLP who is driving, who has had to have tears shed over productivity, cheering in agreement. Yeah, I mean, I, I read through the article and it just made me think of my time doing PRN in a SNF, in a skilled nursing facility. And I've been in a couple of them now, and, and the hardest part, even as someone who came in only every once in a while, you know, a couple times a month, that when I was first starting to learn the documentation system even, other therapists, unfortunately, it cuts down collaboration because they didn't even want to take the time or weren't able, I would say, they wanted to, but weren't able to take the time to help a new person 
log in correctly because it's going to take away from their productivity. Yeah, pretty much the main theme of this article was that productivity implies that seeing more patients each day is a good thing, a, a, a positive thing for you to see uh, as many patients in a day as possible. But really what the, the, the point of this article is to show that, but most patients and physicians agree that it's important to really optimize the time with each patient. How many patients can you comfortably see in one day and still deliver high quality care to each? Mm. And, and I know just as much as I'm sure as many SLPs know is a lot of that informal conversation, that relationship building mm -hmm. is so incredibly crucial. And that talking, especially, and especially for uh, SNFs and, and working with geriatrics, you, that talking is both therapeutic and diagnostic. So when productivity comes, comes into it and you're trying to see as many patients as you can in a day, you're really shortening that conversation and putting less of a focus on interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. I've, I've become better at using that answer, that Q&A session or that uh, just open-ended conversation part at the beginning of a, a session or at the end of the session as part of therapy to, to get them to answer questions or to get to work on strategies or education. But I can't tell you how many times that I've been a patient where it's been something simple and it, and it makes you feel better when the doctor just sits and looks at you in the eye and says, how's your day? How's your kids? How's work? Or recently we had a family member going to the hospital and the doctor came in and it was one of the doctors that sees this family member pretty often. And all the doctor did was she sat and talked with the with my family member for a good 10 minutes that had nothing to do with the reason why they were in the hospital. And it was just to put the family member at ease. Productivity rates kill that. I mean, I, I when I do the sniffs, that I always tell my my you know manager, nurse manager, whatever you want to call her, uh, when she's like, "Well, the productivity rates at eighty percent or whatever," and you came in at sixty three. I go, "Well, I apologize. I don't know where the rooms are, and if you need to hire somebody else, I I understand." And then I get the phone call a couple weeks later saying, "Hey, can you can you fill back in again?" So. Yeah, wow. I mean, the article, too, where it said, he said, please tell me what product, the definition of productivity, which they pulled from Wikipedia, what this has to do Rock with treating. Source. I mean, hey, it is at least a I know, I know, reviewed I know. source, right? <laughs> true. It's <laughs> true. But uh, he's looking at a definition of the word productivity, or she, I didn't catch, I'm sorry, is the author. Robert. Robert, okay, so he... Um, but he makes a good point. You're not producing. We're not producing anything. We don't have a product. We we provide a service and we provide care. So how can we? Gosh, that's a, such a big question. But how can we change yep. productivity to um, to focus on patient outcomes, not on statistical output of the number of people seen? You don't have productivity, do you, Michael? Uh, no, I do not. But I think that brings up an, imp an important point is uh, productivity is not solely only seen in SNFs. Uh, when mm -hmm. I was working here in Philadelphia uh, for a woman in her private practice, because I was a full-time salary W-2 employee paid by the hour, um, I, was doing a, I was doing a combination of private clients in the clinic, 
early intervention clinic, early intervention clients, students at their home and in their preschool, as well as cyber school students who received therapy in the home and students who, who did school through, through, through an online program. So if I were to ever go to someone's house and they didn't answer the door or they were sick or they canceled, I had to let my, super, my supervisor know right away and she would have to send me somewhere else because it was so important that every hour that I was getting paid was seen as a billable hour. And that right there is productivity and that's productivity working with pediatrics and kids. So, mm -hmm. let, so, so productivity always seems to get aligned with SNFs because that's really uh, where we see the vast majority of it. But let's not forget this is this productivity is something that that really haunts a lot of SLPs. Mm -hmm. And it's not just I, I agree with you. It's not just sniffs. I've experienced it in outpatient, um, in privately owned outpatient clinics. Not just privately owned, but um, even ones connected with hospitals. And uh, I think there are clinics, the small clinics that I worked around or in um, tended to, in order to try to avoid that strict productivity, paid per, per patient treated. But then mm -hmm. you have to make a trade-off as a therapist working there because you're not going to be salary. You're not going to be, um, you know, if, if, if you have five patients not show up that day, you're not getting paid anything. <laughs> so um, so their their productivity becomes billable treatment time the home care company i'm going to uh in the spring or in the summertime for full-time work they have productivity but they also have the option to be paid by the visit mm -hmm. and what's nice about their productivity time is they have that if you drive a hundred miles in a day it counts as an hour for productivity so they they take into account like it also is, you know, to try to help you schedule somebody that's a little bit easier to get to. But it is like if you end up driving 100 miles in a day between patients, it's kind of nice to know that it's not going to count against you just because of where they're located. That's a lot of driving, though. So, you know what, though? I mean, I do it on a Saturday like, you know, I, I was just doing my timesheet for for Saturday. And I think this past Saturday I drove 112 miles wow. and saw seven patients in a nine in an eight and a half nine hour day started good. at 10 was done by seven so yeah i did 100 miles in in texas mm -hmm. for sure but i mean like if you think about it you're like the first patient 17 miles so that's only a 25 minute drive see them for about 40 minutes 10 minutes of paperwork drive to the next person that's 15 miles away i mean it racks up quickly well, just think, just think of all the therapists out there who have to be W two salaried so that yep. they can get some, oh, so they can get some sort of benefits. Oh yeah, like, sure. health insurance, anything, a four hundred one k, anything, whatever it may yep. be. I've been and, there. Yep. <laughs> yeah, and and along with W two salary comes little control over your schedule. Yep. Uh, like this, this really boils down to the whole W two versus ten ninety nine thing. Uh, I've been I've been both and being 10, 1099 yes you have control over your schedule uh, you, you there's no productivity but if you don't work you don't get paid if mm -hmm. there's a, if there's a snow day you don't see clients you get paid nothing true but if you're w2 you're gonna deal with this terrible thing that is productivity and some people just s simply don't have a choice they have to be w2 so to deal with this productivity 
kind of, you know, this is, this is pretty much what leads to that, that word burnout that we hear all the time. Mm-hmm. Bingo. Yep. I know that's kind of the, the, the symptoms that I've been reading a lot on the home healthcare page. And it's not just SLPs, it's OTs and PTs where they'll show a picture and they've got 20 or 12 visits for the day. And I'm not even sure how that's even legal, like seven or eight p- patients for the day I can see, and I've done, and it's kind of stressful, but if they're all in the same neighborhood, it's not, not too terrible. But by the time I get to that seventh or eighth patient, my my mind is almost numb that I'm just like, what, what are we working on? Are we, uh, is this the same thing? Like mentally I'm drug out. Exactly. I don't care who you are by that many patients. You could be the greatest SLP in the world. You could be, you could be LeBron James. I don't care who you are (laughs) by the end of the day, you are not providing quality care period, Mm -hmm. period. My max is six, maybe seven. If it's, if they're spread out a little bit. Exactly. And it, it, it's, it's a shame. It's a shame that to, to be that last patient and to mm-hmm. deal with that tired SLP, but it's a vicious cycle. If, I usually uh, see my seventh after coffee though. So yeah, well, that's, so. that's true. But you, you made me think too, having worked in a, in a couple different um, outpatient clinics, the busiest time of day in those locations. And I know it's similar to in private practice, Mike, when you have kids who are getting off school, so the busiest yeah. time, or parents getting off work, and that's when they can bring their child, even if the kid is not in full-time school at that point. So it's our busiest hours at the clinics were 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. Exactly. And, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard. If you're seeing your first patient at 8 a.m., you're 6 p.m. kid, gosh, like, that's tough. Yeah, and, and whether it's in, through insurance or private pay, you know, that's what this family's getting. That's what that client's getting, that tired therapist. And there's really, what is this, what is the solution to that? But that's, that's really where we're at. Well, if you are dealing with productivity, head over to our website, speechsciencepodcast.com. And from there, send us a voicemail, 614-681-1798, or email us, speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. We are excited to have on the other line, Perry Flynn, who may be able to help us find a way to talk to, uh, I don't know, maybe people that can make a difference. Uh, joining us on the show live from uh, D.C. is the Vice President of Planning of ASHA, Perry Flynn. Uh, Perry, I think you might be one of the very few people to be on the show more than one time. Yeah, I, I feel privileged to be on the show more than one time. Uh, we're privileged to have you on. And uh, I reached out to you because I saw you were playing a little Where in the World is Perry Flynn on Facebook. Why are you on uh-huh. Capitol Hill right now? So ASHA's Advisory Council is um, one of the purposes of the Advisory Council is to advocate for things on Capitol Hill on behalf of speech-language pathologists and audiologists. So about 100 members, including all of the members of the Board of Directors, are here. We're here all day today visiting our legislators in our different states to talk about um, issues and advocate about issues for um, for the professions. This is one of the things that people may not know that this is what our ASHA dollars go to do. What does it mean when you say you go and meet with our local legislators? Are you meeting with them in their office? Are you going on to the floor? Yep. What does that look like? Yep. We, um, so the 
members of the advisory council and the uh, board of directors make appointments with the legislators in our different states in advance uh, and plan to go see them. And as many of them as we can get appointments with, we go see and uh, talk to either the legislators themselves or their staffers about um, the public policy agenda of the association. Um, it, you know, ASHA prepares us so well, government relations and public policy provide lots of information for us and really on the ASHA website for anyone to advocate um, either at home in their state or, um, you know, come to DC and meet with their legislators in their offices to, to talk about that. And the, the briefs are the, the public policy briefs are on the ASHA website in government relations and public policy. You can access them anytime to um, talk to your legislators about things that are important to audiologists or speech pathologists. So go to the ASHA website and go to the um, advocacy or government relations and public policy and you'll find that stuff. And we'll have a link on our, our show description as well. How many uh, legislators Excellent. have you met with today? So we met with the North Carolina delegation. There were three of us, and we met with two legislators. We were able to get two meetings. They went really well. They, um, people were very receptive to the issues that we talked about, IDEA, Medicaid funding, um, audiology, direct access. Uh, those those were the issues that we talked about with two legislators. They were very welcoming. Um, you know, the the staffers are usually who you talk talk to. That's who we talk to, staff people, not the legislators themselves. But they really appreciate when people are interested enough to um, you know go out of their way and especially visit here on Capitol Hill and talk to them about issues and um, some of the issues that we talk about they know about or have some prior knowledge but um, some of the things that we talk about they've really never heard of and so it's it's really important for us to get our our stuff up on their radar well you're doing the good work out there what's on the uh, agenda for tomorrow and the rest of the week yeah, so the advisory council gathered on Saturday up here at ASHA, and we met at the national office on Sunday. Everything's going on here on Capitol Hill on Monday, and then the ASHA advisory council and board members gather again at the national office tomorrow, and then we'll all go home later in the day tomorrow. That doesn't sound like too bad of a, of a side trip. No, you know, it's... Um, <laughs> It's been a very productive time, and uh, I, I think everybody is really energized to be here and then to return to their states and continue the advocacy that they've begun here in Washington, D.C. Well, Perry, I, I know you've got a busy evening ahead of you and then a busy day tomorrow. I just want to say thanks again for jumping on with us real quick to, to kind, of, kind of give us an ASHA update on what's happening on Capitol Hill. Yeah, sure. I appreciate the opportunity to do that. And thanks for what you guys do put out. Um, lots of great information there. And so I'm 
privileged, as I said, to be a, a participant on on here more than one time. So thanks for that opportunity too. Oh yeah, Perry, the offer is always out there. You can come on as many times. You could even host it if you want one. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you guys do a fantastic job of doing the hosting thing. I'll so. I'll just play the guest part. <laughs> And if you want more information, check out our website, head over to it. It is speechsciencepodcast.com and check out the link to uh, check out what Perry was talking about. You can also give us a phone call, 614-681-1798 or email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com. Our final article tonight is from Forbes, former Aetna medical director, shock emoji face admits to never reviewing medical records before denying care. Surprise, all that extra work you put into it, getting the Oasis discharge done before the end of the stroke of midnight on February 28th, doesn't matter. Uh, Sorry, I'm a little upset about this article in general. I'm just, I didn't even want to read the article because you hear things like this Mm -hmm. otherwise. And unfortunately, that's the, the bad cases because I've, I've had great experiences with some insurances that I've worked with one in particular in Texas, who, when one of my evaluations was denied, she, the SLP contacted me, the SLP who works for them contacted me to say, Hey, this is what we actually need from you. And so we made some adjustments and we got that plan of care covered, but you don't typically get that. I was, and I think, it's just it frustrates me because why is the default to deny something because most people won't appeal it i was talking to my intern today and she's getting ready to interview and she said one of the answers was cheesy and i said well it's going to be cheesy because a lot of people get into therapy to make a difference in the world to make to make things better for people and you read an article like this where they talk about like you said, Michelle, things just get canceled for no reason without even being read or looked at because oh, no one's going to, no one's going to fight this or where you saw on Capitol Hill earlier this week or last week where the makers of medi- medication bump their prices up here because they can't literally these companies are taking advantage of the people that don't have anyone to fight for them, except of the most vulnerable, yeah, except population. us, and and we don't have a like a way to fight for them. Yeah, I, I I thought it was really interesting how Forbes started this article by simply asking, "Is this the exception or the rule?" Mm-hmm. Almost as if they weren't even that shocked, like insurance in this country has gotten so bad over these past couple of years, the vast majority of us don't even truly recognize it because we are relatively healthy. We're not constantly going to the doctor, constantly taking medicine and going through these things. But whether you have diabetes and you need insulin, whether you have allergies and you need an EpiPen, whether you have a speech issue and you need speech therapy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, insurance has really gotten bad. And this is, and the fact that this happened and this is not massive, massive news is is terrible and i know it from from being a uh, private practice and whether it's an in-network claim or out of network claim and the an etna or whoever it may be denying it instantly 
And now you know that their vetting process to figure out whether to accept or, or not accept is literally nothing. So the, the fact that these, and I'm sure there were many people who needed this, this medical care. And this is really, this is really where we're at now. And, and those of us in private practice, SNFs, schools, this is a this is a very very important thing that so much of our field is reliant on insurance. Have either one of you guys ever had to do what they call a peer? To, I know we call it in home healthcare uh, a peer to peer review, where they deny coverage and then you have to call in to explain why you think they think they are needed. Yeah, I've done both. They yes, I have. It is the most terrifying one sided conversation I have ever been involved with. Because in my my examples or my experience, it's always been this like doctor in the middle of nowhere answers the phone. So they don't know me or my patient. I explain to them what's been going on. And if I don't use the right keywords or phrases, I usually get back this response. Well, they have dementia and all dementia is incurable. So we're not going to cover. And it's like, then I have to explain to the doctor, no, dementia is, there's two types of dementia. There's like progressive dementia and then not progressive dementia and they go oh it's all the same sorry we're not covering this and you go well i just screwed over my patient because i used the wrong medical term to describe their condition sorry i get really amped up over something like this well and we as as a team of therapists at the clinic i worked at um, we had our, our form letters for appeals because we knew certain diagnoses mm -hmm. from certain insurance companies. Um, they would deny, and we would write an appeal, and then they would approve it. Like, I mean, it was, it, 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 it's a, I hate to say it, but it becomes a puzzle and a game that we have to, like, sift through with for patients and for their families. Yep. So we have, so basically we have productivity, which is severely limiting our time with our patients. And now we have uh, the therapists contacting insurance companies to fight for the services in which we are already limited. So this is, we're seeing now, we're describing tonight in this one podcast, what fully entails speech and language therapy is Bingo. you are literally, you are literally fighting for your time with your client that is so that is what we all get into this field to do to be with our students be with our clients and there are all of these outside things trying to distract us and pull us apart from it and they're just such a such a major part of this field right now and it's very difficult as a just having a very generic insurance myself right if to to read through your policy and know exactly what's covered um, there's all that fine print and there's this scenario and this scenario and it's hard to know what the exceptions are, what's accepted. And I, here's a s simple example and it's not something that's such a medical necessity that's really going to cause problems if you don't have it. But a family member of mine, I remember back in high school, needed orthotics in the shoes. Just a simple insert made to order orthotic, right? right? And it was instantaneously denied because a lot of insurances don't cover it. But thankfully, my dad knew, no, wait, that's covered under our policy. Call them back and they're like, oh, our bad. That happened twice Jeez. with orthotics. I mean, because they automatically denied it, yet in the policy it's covered. And that just blew my mind because I'm like, so, so you're issuing an automatic denial unless someone calls you and says, wait a second, 
this is covered. I don't know. I, I, I don't understand how. I mean, I guess I get it. I, I do understand why that they cut down on everything because they don't want to pay. I get that. But I guess maybe that makes me question then like the whole profit medication for profit model, which, you know, would directly hurt all three of our livelihoods because we the one of the reasons we work is so that we can afford a home or take care of our family. I mean, there's the altruistic side to take care of others. But, we, you know, the reason why we do this and not volunteer our time is is to get paid. But I, I just don't see how you can do it without even looking. And it, this reminds me of I got denied from an AAC device once because the person read the word iPad in the first paragraph and then denied it. And then I had to go to court to get it paid for. And they, you know, I did my little thing and the person said, well, if you would have mentioned that in your write-up, we would have paid for it. And I said, I did mention that. I read verbatim what I wrote on the third page. Mm -hmm. And they were like, well... Uh that should have been yeah. the first page. And I'm like, no, whatever. I, like, I wrote appeal letters and I would highlight things, put them in bold. I, I didn't even change my original evaluation. Yeah. I just bolded the statements that I knew they wanted. <laughs> and I've been in countries where there's universal health care and speech therapy there is not so good. Not so, not so hot. It's really, really exactly. It's really, it's a lot of the schools run on more of the consultation model where they pretty much just teach the teachers how to prompt and how to scaffold. And there's nobody else is really, a lot of the SLPs don't really specialize in anything. It's very broad education. So that's not really a quick fix either. Yeah, no, you got both sides of that coin. And I get it. I get the profit for medication or medicine for profit or however you want to word it. And I understand that. But I guess I just I'm over the I'm just fed up with the denial without even reading. And that that's the part that just blows my mind away. So and and Forbes's response was a lack of shock. Right. Is it is it the exception or is it the rule? How many other, obviously Aetna got caught, but who else is doing this? All of them. And, and exactly, exactly. And I think Forbes knows that. They clearly just can't come out and say that because well, there's no direct evidence. Insurance is such a, such a game in general from a personal side, let alone from a medical practitioner side. I remember when our son was born, they sent the hospital, the insurance sent us a bill for like, 10 or $12,000 or whatever it was, $8,000 and, or the hospital sent it after insurance paid for their part. And we were just like, what, what did insurance pay for? And then we talked to the hospital and they're like, well, if you can pay a thousand, we'll write off the rest of the $8,000. It's like, okay, good. Thanks. Like it, it just, I'm on the inside and I don't know the rules of the game. I couldn't even imagine someone on the outside that, doesn't even participate not where do they even go they come to here they hear us and they hear us just get aggravated at them so that's right we are the uh, voice of reason trying to be we want to hear your voice of reason though head over to our website speechsciencepodcast.com and from there give us a phone call 614-681-1798 or you can email us speechsciencepodcast at gmail.com 
Also on that website, you can check out any of our other 67 episodes. You can also head over to Apple Podcasts and rate us those five stars because that helps us bring more messages of good and reasonable voices to you, the listener. Coming up on the other side of the break, I got to sit down with Tina Eichstadt from uh, Pearson Clinical, and her and I talk a little bit about assessments and which one you should be using in your clinic. We'll be right back. You're listening to Speech Science. This podcast is brought to you by Pearson, the company behind the self, GFTA, and the brand new PPVT5 and EVT3. These new easy-to-use vocabulary assessments are brief and reliable for two years, six months old, to those 90 and beyond. Learn more about these new tests at pearsonclinical.com slash exceptional. That's pearsonclinical.com slash X-C-E-P-T-I-O-N-A-L. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hott. I am excited today to be joined by Tina Eichstadt, uh, MS Triple C SLP. She's the Senior Product Manager for Pearson Clinical Assessment. Uh, she manages assessment and inter intervention products, serves primarily in areas of adult neurogenics, vocabulary, written language, and dyslexia. Uh, before Pearson, she worked at Luther Middlefort Mayo Health System. Did I say that right? You did. You awesome. Did. In acute and subacute and outpatient roles, serving both children and adults and their families. Uh, past publishing experiences, including marketing, print-based, and software development roles for thinking publications and AGS publishing. And above all that, former president or past president of, uh, is that Wisconsin State Hearing, uh, Speech and Hearing Association? Yes, it was. Tina, I'm so glad to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. And uh, I'm not going to lie, I Googled you and LinkedIn you beforehand, and I feel like we could have you on for about 800 different topics, but today <laughs> I figured what we would start with would just be <laughs> assessments. And Great. one of the things that we'll have in the show notes, and I want to start with it, uh, is your article that you wrote for the, for the ASHA leader the, about the best assessment. And right. I read that and I'm not going to lie, like that might be one of the best things I've ever read. Oh, thanks. Thanks. It was fun <laughs> to write. Uh, I, I asked a lot of people for your, their thoughts and had a lot of people read it, but I'm glad it resonated with you. It was fun. So when we talk about assessment, what, are, what is the most important part when we look at a student or, or an adult? What's the most important part that we need to look at? Yeah, there are so many things, right? I mean, when we go to school and we learn about assessments, either in our diagnostics class or with that direct experience in the clinic itself, we learn so many different questions and ways to think about assessment. But I think the most important thing is that we think about who this client is, who this person, individual we're supposed to assess is, and what the question is that brought them to us to begin with. So why are they here? Why did they get referred to you, to you as a professional, to one of us? Or why, um, what brings them into our world? Um, and with that history or with that question, it leads into all of the background of that person, but then also really forms the basis of the tools that we choose in our assessment process. And so I think that question of why is this person coming to me 
starts to lead us in the right direction to ask more questions that are appropriate. Is it possible? Cause like I was reading your article and I almost want to like, I have a student right now and I almost want to go back and tell her everything I've told her was wrong because she asked me about assessment and I have a, a standard battery that I do almost with every student. Sure. Is that the wrong sure. idea? <laughs> it's it's not necessarily the wrong idea, right? So we, we have tools that we love. We have tools that are sort of our go-to things that we choose, whether they be a formal assessment tool or an informal assessment tool. I went to a program in grad school and undergrad, same program, that was sort of a home for that dynamic assessment and language sample analysis. And I loved that world because those became key tools in my toolkit. But I think it's also important not to tip too far the other direction to say, I'm not going to think through the, <laughs> the nuances of, again, why this client came to me, the student or this adult, so that I could be flexible about my tool choice. And so I think we, we don't want to go too far in either direction, but that middle line of what makes sense and then take your favorites and add to them as you need, need to. Uh, when I was reading your article, and again, I'm going to kind of refer to it off and on, uh, it reminded me, I had a professor in my grad school, her name was Dr. Marinelli, and she would always, every time she talked, she would hold up her fingers kind of like in a triangle, like I'm doing right now on camera, because this is radio, so I'm going to show you things that I'm talking about, <laughs> but she would always talk about the diagnostic triangle, the, the top part being the clinical impression, the side being standardized testing, and the other side being informal assessment. I feel like right. a lot of new clinicians, and, and, and I've been doing this for eight years, so I feel like I'm still in that new world, that sometimes mm -hmm. I cling too hard to just standardize scores. Right. Is, is right. that, oh, do we, can we over general, can we over diagnose that way or under diagnose that way? Yeah, I think, we, I think we can miss things if we get too stuck in one lane of assessment, when we forget that the totality of assessment is as broad as the tools that we can come up with. Because as you were doing the triangle with your fingers, I was thinking of a different triangle, <laughs> evidence-based practice triangle, right? Yes. Which takes into account all those kinds of things. So there's the science, there's your professional expertise and experience, and there's the client and clinician values. And so both of those triangles have a place the one that you learned and the one that Ashish supports have a place in this conversation because I think if we limit ourselves to one kind of assessment, we get stuck. And then, and then we miss opportunities to learn things that are beyond a contrived setting like a standardized test. And I think that does the client a disservice. So when I look at language testing, so I, I, my background, Tina, I work as a high school SLP uh, Monday through Friday during the daytime. And I've got my Fun. students that are somewhere between the ages of 13 and 22. Um, and then in the afternoons, I work with adults uh, 23 to, I think I've had a 101 year old one time. And that was pretty cool. Oh, wow. Fun. Fun. But <laughs> there are so many tests out there. Um, right. My school district, we have the cell five, we have the expressive or receptive one word picture vocab test. Mm -hmm. We have what I always call the GIFTA, the Goldman Frista, 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 Fristo test of articulation. Um, but when I look at home care, it's what is kind of in that public domain. How does right. a new clinician or how does an older clinician even know where to start in the you know, hundreds of different types of tests out there. If I'm looking for a language test, how do I know that I want the castle versus the self? Yeah, it's a great question. And that, that whole area of tool choice 
is so critical today because there are so many choices out there in the market and not just standardized choices, right? You can go to a researcher, you can go to Google Scholar and research on a keyword and get informal tools coming out of journal articles that are fantastic. I remember when I was working at the hospital, um, one of the voice profiles came out of a journal article about that time that I was working clinically and I just loved it and I used it all the time and it was this was an evidence-based tool that wasn't normed quote-unquote but it was exactly what I needed in a voice process for an eval that made all the difference in my clinical practice. I think when you're looking at all the tools out there, you have to really look at your population. So if you've got a language population of high school students, like you do <laughs> during part of your days, right, then, then you look at what common issues do these high school students have? And if I only can afford or choose one test, what test is going to give me the broadest spectrum of information first, right, that are going to, that's going to cover the better part of my clinical population. And so you're going to choose a particular tool. It may be that for your students in high school, the self five may or may not be what you need as a core tool. Maybe you need the self metalinguistics. Maybe you need something for students with autism, something in Ms. Michelle Garcia Winner's battery of those social communication issues that go on for our kids in, in that space in our clinical practice. But if you look at your population and you know you're limited in what you can choose, look for something that's going to cover broadly. If you're in adult healthcare, you know, I always like to go to the CLQT Plus because that's Nancy Hamesterbrook's tool and she's got this really broad, quick tool that I love. Um, but there are others out there um, that are great. So look at the constructs of the tool. Look for informal measures that you can get for free. Look for those dynamic tasks where the setup of the task for assessment is you know, pretty fixed, but then you can lay in other content pieces and make that easier for yourself. Be really strategic about that so that you can start to build your library in a really thoughtful way and then grow over time. I, I like that. I like how you said build your library in a thoughtful way. Like, I, I like how that, that image builds as I'm looking at my SLP grant money and such like that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And if you're super um, savvy and have good networking skills with clinicians in your area, um, whether you're in private practice or healthcare or schools, then I'll buy this one, you buy that one, and then we can trade when we need to. Um, and so that's just all kinds of smart ways to get through some of the constraints that we all have every day, budgets and otherwise. So in full disclosure, you are from Pearson. So you're, I am. you're I am. more familiar with the Pearson test probably than everything else, right? Right, right. How does, okay, this is a question that I, I, I didn't prep you on, but I do, I want to, I, I have a, a burning desire to know this. Let's say I design my own test. I put it through the rigmarole. I get it that it's standardized. How does a test end up being, I don't want to say sponsored by, but like pushed by Pearson versus somebody else or not at all? How does that even, how do I even get there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a great question. And you know, it's funny because, so I just attended with my 23rd ASHA this last fall, and I've been going since I was in grad school and have had the, the privilege of um, more often than not being attached to a publishing company um, and been a representative helping in the booth and going to sessions and these kinds of things. And every single year, there are a handful of SLPs who bring, and I get to con talk to or contact an SLP who's got a great idea about something. 
And I'm just so fascinated in the entrepreneurial spirit of our profession. Never mind, we're great clinicians, you know, and we do amazing things for children and families. We've got a business sense to us, and I and I love that about our profession. So we're always solving problems and thinking about how we can help other people solve their problems. So for me, over the diff- three different publishing companies I've worked for, it's been basically the same process. So somebody has an idea and they start developing it. Oftentimes, sometimes they come with just the idea. Um, Other times they've done a lot of work on their own and they've field tested it and they've asked other friends and colleagues what they think of it and they've refined it and do all that work. For us, because we have so many things going on and we every, most publishers have a very full plate already in the pipeline. When a new new idea comes, oftentimes for us, we want to see some data along with it. So it can be a great idea. There are a lot of great ideas out there, but we want to know that it's tested. So so I'll often ask people who bring an idea, you know, where's the data that goes along with your idea to show us that this tool in this context is the same or better in terms of clinical outcomes than anything else that's out there or, you know, something similar to that. So we look for data. We look for that field testing. Uh, of course, we have to look at, you know, did you go to Google and you grabbed images off Google, which technically is illegal. <laughs> so we can't, we can't really publish your tool if you've taken images off Google. So, so things like that. And when you look at the business side of it and what constraints, legalities are around there. And then, and then we evaluate the idea and we say, does it fit into the strategic position of our business? Um, is it a gap that we can fill that we don't have in our, in our portfolio today? And I would say most publishers weigh out the balance of what they know about the customer base, in this case, SLPs, that um, may, may or may not think they need a product like this. And sometimes I've, um, well, oftentimes I've directed product ideas from us to other publishers. You know, I'll say, oh. this is a great idea. We really don't have the bandwidth for this, or this really isn't a fit for us. But, you know, this publisher really specializes in this area. And I would really recommend you go talk to them and maybe I'd make an email introduction if I know somebody at that publisher. Because I think good ideas need to get out, but sometimes they need a little help to get to the right place to get out. It, you feel free to plead the fifth on this one. Is it oh, like a, is it a competition between the different publishing houses, or is it really kind of like we're all in it together? Because you said you you would send somebody else somewhere else, but is it is it that friendly, or is it sometimes like oh this is a good idea we can't let anybody else know about this one? Yeah, it's a great question. So, you know, truthfully, it happens in all directions. So when we go to ASHA, just like all of you do, you go to see your friends and colleagues. And when you're when you're in a publishing context, there are a lot of small publishers in the field. And then there are a number of those of us that have been around for a long time and have grown over the years that you just see the same people every year. Um, and so they've become colleagues. And I can, I can think around the exhibit hall at ASHA and I can think of a lot of friends that I have that are in other publishers that I've gotten to know over the years. And so I'd say by, by and large, it's a, it's a healthy, friendly kind of competition. Um, not, not always, but I would say most <laughs> of the time. It's, it's pretty okay. So it, it, it's, it a, helps, it's a good community. It helps that you've got the self too. So everyone knows the self, right? <laughs> and for the record, I don't manage the self. My colleague does. I, I know. But... Um, but, yes, but yes, it's all good. It's all what? good. Um, but, you know, I, you know, when I was at AGS, I had the castle. And that oh. castle and all were part of my portfolio. And so I got to work with Dr. Elizabeth Carroll Wolfolk at length. Um, and then, you know, when we came into Pearson and Psychor came into Pearson, then, you know, now WPS publishes The Castle and the Owls, and they do a fantastic job. Um, and they have a great team. And so we we are very much collegial in the way that we support the profession with tools that they can use. So I guess 
I might be a little confused, so I apologize. So like when I on I'm on Pearson's website and if I type in castle, it shows up. But is that not a yeah. Pearson test then? Not anymore. Not oh, anymore. Okay. So so what we do as publishers oftentimes is of course somebody is um, in charge of publishing that particular tool. But oftentimes there's a, what we call distribution between the companies where right now we sell the castle and the owls on behalf of WPS, the distribution relationship. Um, they sell it and we sell it and it just gets um, to more customers and more people who want to use the castle and the owls. So that's one example to your question earlier about <laughs> friendly competition. Um, but it's a way to have some abundance in the world so that people can get what they need when they need okay. it. So just one example. Yeah, I I never actually even realized that. That's why I was kept saying, oh, I look at these too. Um, I know you don't ma manage or do work too much with the self, but how does a test like the self or the PPVT or the Goldman Fristo that it doesn't seem to matter which kid I test, it doesn't seem to matter, uh, they all kind of, what I'm thinking is probably the issue kind of shows up and how is it that every time I test the kid that it's like, oh, wow, this is pretty close to what's happening in the informal assessment. This is pretty close to uh, what's happening, you know, the teachers reporting or the parents reporting. I, I always find that pretty amazing that I'm like, this kid seems a little weak in uh, recall. And then all of a sudden they, they just bomb that part. And I'm like, huh. Now I have a number for well, that. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Well, the first story is back to the Ash Leader article I wrote is because your brain is the best assessment. So your clinical experience and your training gives you an indication of what you expect to see. So you make an early hypothesis about, about what might happen in an assessment context. And so that's your experience talking, right, and your training. Mm -hmm. But in general, when we build a test and we norm it, for example, that norming process and then secondarily those clinical studies that help us sort kids who have conditions with kids who don't have conditions, our ability to do that is based on thousands of pieces of data um, that come together to give us what we think a typical developing language individual would look like and then what our clinical cases would look like. And it allows us to sort performance pretty pretty clearly on some of these um, tests that we publish. And so it allows you to validate in one assessment context what you're seeing or what you're observing in another assessment context. So that's the power of psychometrics and it's the power of good item writing and it's the power of decent stimuli, n none of which I'm saying in an offhanded way, but very much all a part of the rigor of excellent assessment product development. Now, is that why a test like the self, and I, and I keep referring back to it because I remember when I was in undergrad at Kent State and I was at grad school at Ohio University that it was, okay, you're, this is a language student. This is a language kiddo. You're going to start with the self, maybe the self screener, but you're still starting there. Uh, mm -hmm. Is that how that test just kind of grows and becomes the standard, if not the gold standard? Well, it's true that what we learn in grad school is what we take with us into clinical practice, right? So the tests that we all have studied and worked on are the assessment protocols or the ways that we do assessment tasks that we learn in grad school and learn in our practicum experiences, those we bring with us. And so those early days of, of clinical study make all the difference, right? Um, 
but the self in particular, of course, is a very comprehensive language tool. So it has lots of subtests and lots of things that look at all different components of language that allow you to get a profile then of the student's overall language ability, oral language ability. So if you think about the self as a place to begin, especially for a student, it's a great tool to look at all of language or many, many constructs of language all at the same time and allow students to help create a framework in their minds for the parts of language that they should be looking at. It's a great teaching tool for that reason, because mm -hmm. of its comprehensive nature, because it's so oral language heavy, and it just gives a nice foundation for students then to grow from. And it's why so many people, like they do the castle, like they do other tests, um, grab a comprehensive language tool first, because it's going to let them look at nuances across that um, set of constructs that they need in, in a language evaluation. When when we think of assessment, and I always try to, I, I think of assessment in ETR. And when I talk to my my student, I have an intern or extern or whatever you want to call them. And right. I always tell them, I'm like, this is the most important part. Like, we can readjust an IEP in the middle of the year if we incorrectly identify a cause. And, and maybe you know, have to go back six months later and say, listen, I was wrong. It wasn't inferential questions. It was background knowledge, but we can fix that. Mm -hmm. I feel mm -hmm. like with an ETR, there's so many more hoops to jump through. And some places call it an MFE, the multifaceted evaluation here in Ohio, we call it the evaluation team report, the ETR. Um, right. That I feel like that might be one of the most important pieces. What, what can you tell a new clinician or an old clinician that's afraid that they're going to not get that comprehension or they, that comprehensive evaluation or they want to say, or maybe it's just someone purposely saying, I don't have time to test. I'm just going to quickly write up a one paragraph record review and move on. Yeah. Yeah. I think, <laughs> I mean, that's a tough one, right? You know how busy we all are. Right. And I think we just have to acknowledge the amount of work that comes into our days. Now I'm not practicing clinical anymore, but I remember those days and I remember, you know, large caseload sizes and in the hospital it was sort of see this patient in the next hour go, you know, and this kind of thing always hitting us with so many things to do in so little time. So there's certainly that temptation to say, I looked at the kid in the classroom for five minutes or I walked by him at recess and this is what I think and so let's do this. Probably not the best strategy, right? <laughs> but one of the things that, that, I, uh, that I think about over the years certainly when it comes to assessment and more as of late with working with more and more school psychologists, it, just not only at Pearson, but in the, in the greater world, especially in the dyslexia and reading space, is that there's so much power in a quick five-minute conversation pre-evaluation process with your school psych or your reading specialist or your classroom teacher, but especially your school psych to say, what are you going to do with this kid? What tools are you going to use? What do, we, what do we do not to overlap too much? Like if you're going to do the CTOP, why don't I do the CTAP and you can do something else? Or do we all need eight vocabulary measures? Probably not. <laughs> so if we just check in with our team and make sure that we have an idea of what the assessment plan is going to be, we can probably save ourselves individually and collectively some time with the right tool makeup, if you will, of that overall battery across professions. So this whole interprofessional practice focus of ASHA really resonates with me. And it should in all of our assessment contexts because in assessment, 
with as little time as we have to be smart about the overall battery for a student, how much time we're taking them out of class, mm -hmm. for example, or what the patient in the bed will tolerate having been two days post-stroke. You know, this kind of quick discussion that then really gets rhythm from an interprofessional standpoint can make all the difference in the time spent. So I guess, I think I answered your question. Yeah. <laughs> That's where we're really <laughs> headed when it comes to assessment and not having time to do everything you think you might want to do. I love that. I love how you you mentioned talk to talk to the school psych or talk to a coworker. I can't tell you how many times I'll sit in a meeting and the psych will, you know, they'll say, so according to my scores, they came out in the 55 standard score on expressive vocabulary and my verbal overall verbal score came out as a 68. Matt is a speech pathologist. What did your testing show? And I'm like, well, his core language came out at 67 and their expressive vocabulary came out at 58. So I guess I got nothing to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> right. And you know, it's funny because in ASHA last fall, um, there were four of us at Pearson who were, you know, kind of coming from different professions who did a session on exactly this conversation in the dyslexia and reading space and talked about, I know because I'm on 616 with so many of us and I know that the relationships between the psychs and the SLPs are not always fabulous. And so that being what it is, to build those bridges, we're the communication folks, right? So we need to get yes. in there and work on those relationships and say, hey, let's, let's talk a little bit about this. We don't walk into that IEP meeting like you just described. <laughs> <laughs> Repeating we can do better than that. Information. Yeah, right. Because, you know, who cares? No, nobody that has no context to it. It doesn't make sense. Right. And wouldn't it be lovely if we could get all our scores in one document and then have a single summary page across all the professionals to hand to the parents when we walked in the room, right? Right. Amazing. Uh, it's, I, it's like a dream of mine to I see thought, that happen. I thought a lot of parents enjoyed getting a 60-page document <laughs> with a lot of technical language that no one else but the person who wrote it understands. <laughs> yeah, well, being a parent uh, in my non-SLP world, as a parent of four kids, one of whom has special needs, I've been the parent on that side of yeah. the diagnostic report. And I get it, so it makes me <laughs> chuckle. But, but it is quite something to experience. You talked a little bit about saving time. And I, even though I'm 33, I've only been in the field for eight years, I feel like I am holding on to whatever remnants of the old guard there is and refusing to look at, what is it, the Q Interactive or using the iPads and doing all that. Right, right. How did that start? And is that, do I need to get off my dinosaur train and hop on <laughs> to the digital? You are not alone. You are not alone. I will just say that to you, Matt. So, so digital assessment is not new, but not old either. So it's one of those things that not just, you know, those of us at Pearson, but other companies have looked at for a while. You know, a lot of people started with scoring and reporting because that was safe and easy and didn't have direct that client contact in any way. And um, then a few years ago, we started, we said, hey, you know, are pictures on a screen equivalent to pictures in print? Like, how, how did that work? So we did that study and we looked at it and in fact, they are. Um, and so, you know, moved into sort of digital stim books and digital manuals and maybe we could make it easier for you not to have to lug all that stuff around between your schools or your buildings. Um, but really that Q Interactive entrance that we made a few years ago with two iPads that are Bluetooth together 
is really the next generation of assessment, I think, truly digital assessment where the clinic, clinician has an iPad, the client has an iPad, and we're literally pushing data back and forth between the two iPads, and then it's all done automatically. You know, I, I think each of us as professionals decide to make that leap at different times. Um, you know, and I think it's it's all okay. It's all timing. Um, it's certainly budget preparing, preparing, and you know those kinds of decision making. So there's a lot of factors that go into when people convert and how they convert. Some people are, you know, jumping in with both feet all at once. Some people take little steps over the course of time, maybe with one tool or maybe with something else. So I think you just have to find your way and get comfortable in those spaces. You will. You'll be fine. Um, <laughs> but it, it's fun to watch clinicians make those different steps at different times. See, I, I, I kicked myself because I had signed up to be part of the Pearson Field Clinical Research or oh, whatever yeah, that the was research team? Uh, yes. back before the Self 5 came out. Okay. So, and, it, and I happened to work in um, a school district that like ticked off like five important boxes, what I found out later. And I was like, oh, I'm going to do this. And I talked to my school and they were like, no, you're not going to do this. You can't use our time. <laughs> but like, I was like, oh, you, they'll send you the iPads and do all that. So I kind of feel like, I think I, think I was in my first year in, in the field too. I feel like if I would have just jumped in at that point, I would be like all about iPads and doing everything that way. <laughs> yeah, you're right though. I mean, but you bring up a good point because it's like, there are, there are organizational and cultural constraints about that digital shifting. And you kind of have to get the whole crew to sign off on it once. And we all have that work to do in our organizations. One, one of the things that's great about our field research team, and we don't do all our testing on, on iPads now, but a lot of it is. Um, and so to try it that way, to give you a feel for what that would be like to do that in your clinical work, to try it with a field research process, um, is really pretty pretty low lifting in terms of effort to get that going. Um, and it's a great experience. People like to try things like that and um, see what it might be like and then make decisions from there. So maybe it's time to try again, Matt. I, I think it is because like, every, <laughs> here, I'll, I'll tell you, I'll be 100% honest. Here's how it happens. I go, oh, I love testing. I love writing it down. I love the whole process of like hand scoring it. And, and part of me really does enjoy that. And then about midway through the year, when I have ETRs number 20 through 40 showing up, I'm right, like, right. oh, this would be so much nicer just to hit complete <laughs> and have it tell me what the standardized score is. <laughs> yeah, and I think there's a trade-off there, right? I was talking to a clinician the other day in, in Canada who was using the new PPPT5 and EBT3, and she said, I'm kind of a person who likes to do this in paper. You know, this is a simple test. They just like to score it by hand. I'm like, go for it. If that's what you need to do, that's what you need to do. That's fine. And and then you're right. Then there's this this point where where can I find an extra five minutes of my day, right? This is easy to right. score right. But is, like, I saw somebody at ASHA a number of years ago, Alex Johnson, I think, um, who did a talk on working at the top of our licenses, mm -hmm. right? So if we're thinking about how best our time is spent, then with as busy as we are, sometimes we have to go through the day and say, do I really have to do this? Now, is this something that only I can do as a master's level SLP? I'm not above work and recess or bus duty or whatever. That's fine. Right. You know, I, I'm happy to go out and do that as part of the day because I'll make that part of my observation time. But there are other things like scoring a record form that probably we could use our time better 
helping our students by not doing that. And I'm guessing using the digital assessment, is all, is all the digital assessment Q interactive before I like just use no, it on the blanket? Yeah, not, not really. So we have a okay. couple different platforms. So Q interactive is the two iPad um, system where you're, that's your self fives and your PPVT fives, and you can do that interactively with the client. Okay. We also have our Q global system, which is really our scoring and reporting system, but also houses all of our digital stim books and manuals. Oh. So if you're not ready to go all the way into Q interactive and, you know, take that on as a digital shift, you can go in to Q global, for example, and pull up the digital stim book on your laptop or your desktop or, you know, your tablet, whatever, and use that in your assessment with the paper record form. It's a little bit of a partway there kind of strategy, okay. which lots of people have started with because that'll help them ease into the space. And, and I'm sure using like Q Interactive or, you know, uh, it's not going to happen. What happened last year to me was I was at the end of my year or at the end of the, at the end of the school year, I was making sure I filed everything and I came across just a lonely self five that I had put the birth date on, but no name. Oh, so oh no. I had to go through yeah, every no. <laughs> I wrote to try to find the kid that matched up with their scores. And I found it and I was like, okay, that lesson has been learned, Mr. Hot. Don't do that again. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, that's a tough one. That's and we've all done that, right? So you're <laughs> nice. in good company again. But there is there is time spent in, you know, sort of helping your data be in one place and making sure that you have all your resources readily readily available to you wherever you are so there's, now, a, there's a benefit there too now does the q interactive have like a limited number of protocols then no no oh. um you can do a pay-as-you-go model um okay. for both q global and q interactive so if you aren't sure, sure how many yeah. administrations you're going to use you just do the number you want and then you can add on as time goes on so it just kind of depends on how many tests you want um and then how many administrations you think you're going to do Okay. Um, changing gears just a little bit. Maybe it's because I'm in Ohio. So like Wayne Secord is like Ohio, Ohio State. And <laughs> like right. everyone right. knows who he is. They may not know. They may not have met him. I met him by accident. He was sitting at one of the tables when I was a first year clinician at OSpeak, which is the Ohio school-based conference. And he was just right. sitting at a round table talking to everybody and I'm sitting at the table and I look probably as green as could be like just newbie. And, you know, I'm like, Oh, who are you? What do you do? And he's like, Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm a speech pathologist. I work at Ohio state. I was like, Oh, very cool. And then they're like, our keynote speaker, Dr. Wayne Sikor. And he's like, oh, I got to go talk. And I was like, what? You're that guy? So who is it's a good moment? It's a good moment. for you. <laughs> like, and it was just like, huh? You didn't even, I, I should have said something smart instead of whatever I said. Is there anybody, and, and is he as big nationally as he is in, is in Ohio? And is there anybody that's kind of like that new level that where he's at? Yeah, it's great. Yeah, <laughs> so many, so many clinicians around the country know Dr. Secord, and he's a hoot and he's amazing <laughs> and he has worked tirelessly for decades. He's, if he ever listens to this, I hope he gives me a hard time when I see him next, but um yeah, so so yes, he is one of our rock stars in the profession, um, and certainly yeah. there are others. Um, and so you can look as far as any state, and every state has their rock stars, but Wayne is one of our national rock stars for sure. Um, and really, as we think about our tools, 
um, that we choose to use are the scientists that are really moving our profession profession forward, we can really stand on their shoulders. And you know, all of, all of the ones that I've met in my career have been so welcoming and um, encouraging to newer the newer generation of clinicians. And we always get a little starstruck when we re- read about them in grad school and then we meet right? them. It's pretty fun. Um, but they are all human beings and they're really good communicators and they're very, very encouraging of the next generation of professionals. And so whenever I get a chance to introduce somebody to one of our authors or one of those people like Dr. Secord and his rock star status, it always makes my heart sing a little bit because it's so great for that, you know, sort of bringing the field along over the years. And I know your background is at the university, correct? Um, I did. I did my university training, of course, and then I taught okay. a little bit at the university okay. for a couple of semesters, but mostly in healthcare and acute okay. care and neuro and trauma. You had mentioned scientists. There's a reason we call the show Speech Science, and one of the reasons that I'm such a big person on the evaluation. I feel like our field gets. And again, this is any of these questions you can always say, no, I'm good. I don't want to answer that. I've got a, a professional <laughs> to hold up. Um, I feel like our field, we get too wrapped up into the Pinterest therapy versus mm-hmm. the data-driven therapy. And especially in schools, sometimes we only get that data-driven therapy every three years. How How important is that when you guys are looking at assessments, when you push a new assessment when you update an assessment, you know, the, the PPVT3 coming out, how, how do you guys decide that's when the data needs to change or how important that data is and, and such? Yeah, it's a great question. In the assessment context, it really depends. Historically, we've been, like many other test publishers, in this sort of 10-year revision cycle. And after about 10 years, people start to get worried about the norms and if they're still appropriate. And, um, and the data might suggest in a particular context, it's time to make sure that we're, we're still talking about the same population as we were 10 years ago. Um, it depends, though. You know, it, speech articulation, speech sound development is not terribly different you know, year over year, we still have the same corpus of sounds that we have to learn, and we still have to do that. So the GFTA3, I think, came out a number of years longer than 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and PPVT, I think, was 12 years, 11 or 12 years between the four and the five that just came out. And so I, I think it really depends on the construct. Some of the adult neuro tests aren't revised as often either because the population and the norming process is a little different and we don't expect the scores to really change a whole lot. Um, but we still are mindful of that as the norms age that we're really representing the population in the same way that we were when we published. So there's lots of things that go into consideration about that, but we know that there are um, some states in particular and some clinicians very much who um, really want refreshed norms on a routine basis. So we're thinking always about ways we can deliver that to customers and professionals and colleagues year over year. But again, it really depends on the test. And I don't know if this is a you question or you as Pearson or just a general assessment question, but you get to answer it anyway. So congratulations. Um, (laughs) Do you guys ever, I don't want to say the word mess up because I think that feels the wrong impression I'm giving, but like, you know, it a test won't overqualify or underqualify. Do you guys ever say, "Oh, this is off the mark. We got to issue a re 
renorming of anything or is it just kind of like, well, we'll get it next time or how does that whole part work? Yeah, it's a great question. I would love to admit that in the last 20 years, we've never had an errata. <laughs> Sadly, I cannot say that. <laughs> so so it's, it's a big deal, right? It's a serious issue, depending on what it is, you know, and other publishers have the same issue. You know, we've supported other publishers in their errata process to tell people what's gone on and, you know, how the fix has been made. And for us, um, I can remember sending out hundreds of letters about this table and this part of the manual needed to, you know, reprint and so here it is um and so it really depends on the level of mistake that we found um had another example in my head and now it's escaped me but if it comes to me i'll let you know um but there are all kinds of erratas and and quote-unquote mistakes that that publishers make and we try to make them right as quickly as we can very often it's not really in the scoring um i can oh this is the example i was thinking of um Sometimes when we do age bands on our norms, we do them in six-month intervals. Yeah. And sometimes in the younger ages, um, colleagues have wanted us to do a more n- narrow age band. And so we'll go down to two or three-month intervals or even one-month intervals, depending on what the test is and what it's measuring. So th- sometimes we make changes in the in the norming after the fact. That's not really an error. It's just helping people use it a little easier. Oh, okay. Um, but we spend lots and lots of time and lots and lots of people um, reviewing and checking things to make sure we don't get the scoring wrong. Um, and the, and the most important thing is really to have your research plan robust enough so that you have every chance of representing the population well and getting it right. And and then making sure you control the quality of the details that all of those hundreds of pages of norms (laughs) tables come out correctly every time. Um, and and I apologize. Did you call it a, what did you call it? A neurona? An errata, like uh, an error. Oh, errata is uh. the, the, the fancy word for that. Yes, errata. <laughs> well, in all fairness, it's like 11.15 here. So I was like, an errata? Yeah, you're good. You're doing that. awesome. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> so before we wrap it up, and I do appreciate you sitting down and, and, and kind of going through this, um, what is your favorite test? Just, I we all have a favorite test. And I don't know why mine was always the 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 Goldman Fristo, the gift. I don't know why that's my favorite test. Maybe it's because it, I can kind of get through it with with kids and go through quick. But right. for some reason, for me, the the gift always meant your assessment's almost over. Now you can start to write it up. So to me, the <laughs> gift is like my favorite. What is yours? Oh, it's such a great question. The problem for me is that I attach all the tests that I love with the authors who made them because that's so much of my day-to-day work. So you say the gift, and instantly I think Ron Goldman, who was such a mentor to me and so delightful to work with. He was just the quintessential professional. So when I think about the GFTA, the Goldman Fristo, I think about Ron. Um, So that's a great thing. The PPVT is a test that I've managed for 15 years and now it's, the expressive vocabulary test, the EVT as well. But when I think of those tests, I think of the authors. So I, uh, I have great, like, great relationships with all my authors. So I can't pick a favorite. It's like picking a favorite kid, right? That's so fair. you can't do that. It's like not, not allowed. Um, but I, but I do love, I do love the authenticity of each test. Not only that it connects with the authors and their theories about how the world works in terms of language or cognition or thinking. Um, but also because uh, 
I have those great relationships that I want to continue on. And um, they, they do that work of their theory made into practice and practical tools for people to use just so cleanly. And so then I, I'm not going to pick a favorite, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good answer. That, now I know how you became the, the, the president of, of WSHA. I, now I can see that. Oh, <laughs> well, I had some good mentors there too who said, you're going to do this, Tina. Um, <laughs> That's how, that's how I got involved with OSLA. <laughs> yes, yes, we all do that. Everybody should take a turn. Let me yeah. do a pitch for state association work. Everybody needs to take a turn agree. in the leadership position of your state association. There, I said it. I 100% agree with that. The last question mm-hmm. of the night, kind of a fun question. So I, 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 at Ohio University, the Goldman Fristo, you know, we call it the gifta. The, the self is the self. Is there ever like an abbreviation or like someone names it something that you just went, I have no idea what, how did you get to that? Did you ever have anyone come up to you and you just go, you call it what? Um, I do actually. And I'm going to, I'm going to say this and I'm hoping I not laugh as I do this because I'm going to have to tell the author that this happened too. But when I first took on the cognitive linguistic quick test, which okay. I call the CLQT plus now. Yeah. Um, I was meeting for the first time with Dr. Nancy Helmesterbrooks, who's the author of the CLQT, no, CLQT plus. And she all of a sudden started saying the word click it, like all the time, <laughs> like click it. And I could not figure out what she was talking about at first, <laughs> let me be honest. And it took me a bit in the conversation to realize, oh, that's what she calls it. And so since then, <laughs> every so often I'll hear somebody call it the click it, which is, you know, fun and cute and, yeah. you know, rolls off the tongue really easily, but I just can't say that myself. So for me, it will always be the CLQT, not the CLQT plus, but there are a whole bunch of um, <laughs> Nancy Hemesterbrook students and mentees over the years that call it the Quicket, which I think is hilarious <laughs> and fun and great. Why not? But it won't I, be me. I, I realized the GIFTA was a Ohio U thing because when I left Ohio U, they were like, well, what test do you use? And I was like, well, for articulation, I use the GIFTA. And they're like, what's the GIFTA? And I was like, uh, Goldman first. And they're like, the Goldman first one? And I was like, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that one. Right? I'm the weird one. <laughs> Got it. Yep. And they call it the GIFTA. There's like four names for that test, right? Is there, but, really, what, is there really? Yeah, so the, the Goldman Fristo, the GFTA, the GIFTA, I want to, some people call it the GF. So it kind of depends oh. on where you are and how your training went. So fair enough. All, all is well. Tina, before we let you go, did I miss anything that's super important about assessment that you want to tell people or anything cool or happening over at Pearson in the next, this will probably air first week of March. So anything okay. cool? Always cool things at Pearson, of course. <laughs> Um, I can't think of anything off the top of my head, except we're just so busy working on what's next. We're still basking in the glow, or maybe I'm basking in the glow of the PPVT5 and EVT3 being done. Always new updates on our digital stuff. So just encourage people to check that out. I think the last thing I would say is really an encouragement to who is ever listening at whatever point in your generation of professional <laughs> life that you are, um, is that we can do a better job, I think, as a profession, understanding like what's under the hood in the assessments that we use. Our school psych colleagues do a much better job at that than we do. They're trained to do that more deeply than we are because assessment is more of their bread and butter. But I think for us to be you know, really good team members, 
We just need to do a deeper job at thinking about the tools that we use, both norm reference, standardized, informal, all of those parts of assessment, and bring all of those into the conversation um, to really be the best team members that we can be. Don't be afraid of the numbers. That's what I'll say. <laughs> Tina, I hope you come back on the show, and thank you so much. This was awesome. Thanks, Matt. Glad to be here. Welcome back to Speech Science. I'm Matt Hot. Episode 68, joined, as always, by the one, the only, Michael McLeod. What's up, buddy? And the mother of speech science, Michelle Winter. <laughs> Hi, Matt. You're the only mom on the show. so I am the only female host on the show. <laughs> yeah, but I'm trying to think back. We've had other female. No, they might have been moms, too. But you're the only reoccurring mother on the show. How's that? This is true. And I was not technically a mom yet when I started because he wasn't born yet. <laughs> there you go. Don't split hairs. <laughs> no, I'm saying I've been to, there you go. I was expecting James when I started co-hosting with you, Matt. Fair enough. You know what? On the Tina, Tina interview, the thing that I felt was the most interesting was where she said that the test that you use the most often is related to where you go to grad school. And whichever test that they kind of teach you to use in grad school is kind of the test that we all refer back to. And I know personally that my go-to tests are the expressive and the receptive one-word picture vocabulary tests and the self five and the Goldman Fristo because it seemed to be always used at OU. Michelle, are you kind of the same way? We went to the same grad school at the same time. I think I was, okay. and I think I had to change, but I was forced to because of my job. Michael? Yeah, I think a lot of the students that come to these graduate clinics, I think you do tend to see a lot of these same tests. Uh, I did a ton of self, a ton of PLS, uh, GFTA, expressive one word, receptive one word, some of the just the very basic ones, mm -hmm. the, ones you, the ones you can kind of just grab off the shelf and administer without even thinking. Uh, but I, I always love administering the different tests and the different types of tests and doing something new. Um, that's one of the small things of diagnostics I actually enjoy. That's true. Yeah. I and I had to step away from a lot of standardized things when I was working with the deaf and the blind oh, yeah. because there are so few tests that are normed on those populations. I have an uh, intern, and she asked what tests we're going to do with one of our kids that has multiple handicaps. And I looked at her and I said, well, we're not going to really use one of the standardized because he, he falls into one of those special categories. So I gave her this big book of assessments that I've gotten that are just all informal assessments. And I said, and she's from Ohio University as well. And I just kind of put it in front of her and I said, all right, find two or three that we're going to give them. You're going to give them. And then you're going to tell me which one you like the best. And she's like, have you used all of them? And I went, nope, but you're going to help me figure out which one I like. <laughs> I'm a mean, I'm, I'm a mean supervisor. No, that you're giving them autonomy some too, though. That's I don't true. think that's, that's true. Speaking of positive, we, I figured, okay, the show's kind of on a downer note there. A couple, two bad stories and the good news from Perry, but figured this one, this is coming out today's show. Um, this is from uh, Maya Carella and she talks about, uh, the us versus them and how that can feel like that in special education. But the speech therapist that she's working with or with her, with her child uh, doesn't make her feel that way. And it's just a thank you letter to speech therapy 
And I feel like we need that sometimes. Yeah, this was a really, really good article. And it really just talks about, you know, it's nice to see it from the mom's perspective uh, of really just how much speech therapy just completely improved not only the child's life, but also the mom's and their relationship in general. So seeing that was amazing. Uh, And my favorite part of the article was when she says, you and my daughter clicked almost instantly mm-hmm. and began building the foundation for the unbreakable bond that you two formed. That's something, that's a, that's a little piece of SLP pride that I will always believe that no one does it like SLPs, not teachers, not OTs, not PTs. I don't care who you are. No one knows how to motivate and build those relationships and build that rapport like an SLP. I I just felt like this article was like a big hug. <laughs> I just <laughs> loved it. I think we need we need that encouragement as well and not just from each other. It's nice to get it from a parent and who is is grateful for our profession and for what we do. She says uh special needs parents we are often put in the position position of feeling like it's us against them like we have to fight for the services our children are entitled to, fight to prove that what we are capable of, and fight to be heard. With you, I've never felt the need to fight because I've always known in my heart that we are on the same team. From day one, we have always been. And and, and that's just awesome. And and that goes with my, my saying. I always tell every intern that I have that even though the district pays my paycheck, I'm the parent and child advocate. You know, I would love to get fired from a district just not my current district i like you fairfield please don't fire me but like (laughs) i would love to be fired because in a meeting i said whoa we need to do better to help take care of this kid and they go we're not gonna have that you're fired and i walk into my next interview and go so i got fired advocating for a student (laughs) like i would love to be in that interview because i'm pretty sure that the next school district or the next job would go we we want you so Keep fighting for those kids, guys. That's what I keep. That's what I say. <laughs> what a great story. Oh. <laughs> oh, let's end this puppy on a good note. Michelle Wintering, what are you doing in the next seven to 10 days? Seven to 10 days. I like how you give me such a specific time frame. Well, um, between no, now actually, and when we record again. <laughs> I'm uh, working on attending some professional development coming up for mm-hmm. hippotherapy, nice. which I've mentioned to you all before. Uh, so hippotherapy, hippo meaning horse in Greek. Uh, so PTs, OTs, and SLPs and using equine movement as part of therapy. And I volunteered doing that in El Paso with uh, compadres therapy and hoping I can connect in, since I'm in horse country, technically in Kentucky, um, trying to find a, uh, certification course i can take for a level one hippotherapy oh, i wish we would have known that perry flynn's a huge horse guy I would have hey that. well i'll have to connect with them <laughs> michael mcleod what's going on this week for you uh yeah so i have two evals coming up with uh like very very young young kids okay so i have not done that in quite some time uh i, I i've definitely talked about it here on the podcast that I've been working with mostly middle school, high school, uh, college level students. So what assessments are you going to use? Speaking that's of, a, that's a great <laughs> problem. Michael's going to go Google that here in a little bit. Exactly. I probably was doing it before. 
But yeah, but I'm, I'm, I'm excited. I haven't done that in a while and it, it'll, it'll be fun. It'll be great to brush up on that stuff. Awesome, awesome. For me, I've got to go to the Ohio Speech, Language and Hearing Association. Uh, our big convention is this weekend. Um, little weird humble brag. I am receiving the fellow award on Friday. Uh, so that's kind of cool. And then I get to celebrate it by presenting on Saturday to all the school-based SLPs uh, in the state of Ohio. Um, I'm excited because I've got Greg Thornton, who is the executive director for the Ohio Speech and Language Board, coming to talk. We've got Barbara Conrad. I've got Janice Wright. I've got Kathy uh, McDermott. Um, the thing is, is that no one ever tells you this, but if you jump into a position at your state association and you have to present uh, just make sure you know people that are smarter and better than you and then ask them to help present with you on topics that they're experts in because then everyone looks at you and goes wow that was a great presentation and you go I am just the facilitator that I know all the people that are smarter and better at this position than I am so that's good marketing Matt <laughs> Very good. I put together the po I put together the PowerPoint, and that was all I did was I emailed everyone and said, "Send me your PowerPoint slides, and I'll put them together." I am the guy in group projects. That <laughs> I am the coordinator in group projects. It's needed. Yeah, I got nothing else. <laughs> oh, our opening music tonight is please listen carefully by Chazar. It's licensed under an attribution and share alike license. Our bump music is the Spellbreaker by Chai Tachyon. And our closing music is the Slow Burn by Kevin McLeod. It's licensed under a Creative Commons attribution license. In the immortal words of the Janice Wright, always be a willow because in a storm, the oak will try to stand strong, but it will break. The willow will bend and come back to shape for the one and only Michael McLeod and the wonderful Michelle Wintering. I'm Matt Hot saying so long until next week. Bye bye, everybody. Bye. This has been an Exceptional Podcast Network production. Speech Science is edited and produced by MWH Production. Please follow Speech Science on Twitter at SpeechSciencePC and like our page on Facebook. For more original podcasts, please visit ExceptionalEd.com and rate and subscribe to our podcast anywhere you get your podcasts.